Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back, listeners. It's great to have your company uh, again today. Um, and it's always our duty to suggest feedback on 2057 or realitycheck.radio at uh, inbox. Oh, what I've forgotten it all of a sudden. Um, you'll correct me, Jasper. I, I will inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Don't <laughs> Guys, the topsy-turvy world, Don. I stuffed that up. Without it right <laughs> in front of me, it just shows me my memory is hopeless, like a sieve. And so... <laughs> Why, why talk about feedback? Um, it's why we have our guest today, actually. We got some very good feedback by a guy, Mark Holman, a couple of weeks ago. And I thought, hmm, I think I'll give this guy a call. And I learned that he has um, timber and sawdust in his boots, or just timber in his veins, and as he says, sawdust in his boots. So I thought, yeah, a bit like me, perhaps. But when I talked to him, it was clearly a whole lot more intensive than me. So um, today we have Mark Holman. He's living in Papamoa and he has a long and varied history in the, or many industries, but mainly in the timber industry and forestry. So welcome, Mark, and welcome to Greenwashed. Uh, Tell me, where did all this start for you? Central North Island, I think. Yes, no, that's correct. Uh, Hi, Don and Jaspreet. Um, Yeah, and I was uh, born and raised in Awakuni in Central North Island, and my uh, Dad was a logger in the Karioi forest, and um, um, yeah, from age ten, you know the the times, but when uh, kids actually went to work with their parents, and so uh, yeah, no PlayStation. I I had real toys like bulldozers and diggers and trucks uh, to to play with, you know, the big boys sandpit. So yeah, it was uh, it was a really good upbringing, and. Um, but we we shifted in 1973 from Oakuni uh, to uh, uh, quite a juxtaposed uh, location, which is the Bay of Islands. And um, Dad got a contract in the Waitangi Forest, and um, yes, and I went to school at Bay of Islands College, and um, yeah, had a had a real happy time there. Uh, but all of my spare time was with dad uh, helping out uh, either in the bush or in the workshop fixing machinery and chainsaws and rati And so when I, when I left school, I, I just naturally migrated into the family business and there I stayed for um, 16, 17 years until uh, we sold the business in, um, in the early 90s. At that point, um, I, I went and joined uh, a, an American company that had purchased some of the um, state forests in New Zealand, uh, what was then ITT Ryanair, which is now Matariki Ryanair or Ryanair Matariki or something like that. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, I fulfilled a, quite an interesting role there of supervising uh, 20 harvesting crews and half a dozen um, log transport crews. And um, uh, then I got involved with them into buying private woodlots, uh, be they be from farmers or private foresters, and um, yeah, so uh, that that was that was a great run until the company decided to restructure, which um, uh, gave me the opportunity to, to go out and buy timber on my own account and and act for sawmills as their buying agent and, and organising harvesting 
and marketing of um, uh, log products around the North Island. And um, But that, that had a downside because uh, I got involved in a take-or-pay situation and right. um, uh, the, uh, the take wasn't looking particularly good, so uh, I, I had to find an alternative to it, which m- meant I ended up uh, getting a sawn... Um, uh, market in Australia for the timber um, and then I needed to convince a sawmill to produce it for me and I went into a deal where I actually leased a sawmill um, and that uh, in the 10,000 problems that you could have in a sawmill which I believe you understand a fair bit about that Don and you've still got all 10 fingers and so have I so that's always a good start <laughs> um, the um, uh, the, the final blow was uh, that I, I got my first three export shipments on three consecutive vessels that sailed across the Tasman and sailed straight into a 14 or 15 week wharfie strike in Sydney. Yeah. And, um, you know, literally every exporting sawmill in New Zealand had um, significant quantities of timber on those vessels. And basically the banks went through and picked the winners and the losers because I was just a startup and, uh, um, you know, I, I, I was the biggest loser. <laughs> well, probably wasn't the biggest loser, but I definitely ended up losing it. So... Um, from from there, uh, I, I managed to wiggle my way into a, a role with a uh, one of the five Japanese trading houses, Sumitomo Corporation, and um, I was able to facilitate the uh, trading of New Zealand sawn timber products uh, around the Pacific Rim. Yeah, so. so so that's a good point to jump in. There's a lot of discussion in the last you know as long as I can remember really about how New Zealand just exports these logs unprocessed um, or as chips uh, into uh, Asian countries, and we don't do um, any of processing in New Zealand. What's the what was the state then? Clearly, you were exporting sawn timber, so there was there was some processing. Um, what is why did that status seem to diminish over the last sort of 20 years? And what was it that has basically killed off the small sawmills in this country? Um, it was a number of uh, things in there that the big factor is foreign exchange. Um, you know, we need, a, we need a robust exchange rate uh, across the Tasman because it's the most expensive piece of water in the world to put freight across. Uh, and also to the United States, those um, the the volumes into Asia of sawn timber are infinitesimally low, and and that that's sort of a, a back to front trade barrier really uh, mm. that they're protecting their own labour markets, um, uh, and we we don't help ourselves in the the way we market our logs anyway because um, I'm currently fulfilling a a phytosanitary role at the Port of Tauranga for logs and sawn timber. And, um, you know, I I was inspecting pruned logs today. Uh, There was black as a pair of my school shoes, you know. And, uh, you know, so what, what is the 
what is the benefit of, of going through a, a 28, 30-year regime of pruning and thinning to grow a, a premium prune butt to let it sit for, you know, mm. 8 to 12 weeks on the port before it then has six weeks to sail up to um, China and then have goodness knows how many more, you know, it could they could be six, seven months old, maybe even more, you know. So, um, yeah, we... In, in the timber industry, I think that we have been trapped into that cycle that the early meat industry was, and we haven't actually worked out how to um, get the value proposition out of the raw product. And uh, exporting the raw product is just, it's easy, you know? And... Um, but what I, what I've seen in um, recent months um, down at the port here is that the whole move from the style of logging that happened uh, when I was logging uh, in my prime, uh, which was a very um, manual process with chainsaws and you know men on uh, and women on skids cutting up logs, everything's now done by processes. Um, and, um, you know, you're putting uh, $1.2, $1.3 million into a processor, you need to poke the volume through. And uh, therefore, what I'm seeing is that the quality of logs are generally going down and down as as to the specifications, you know. So It's, it's interesting, listeners, one of the hardest jobs, I've, and I've been around some hard jobs, and I think I've done a few myself, one of the hardest toughest jobs I've ever seen done was skitter operators, which is uh, the machines that tow logs up or across the terrain to, uh, to a site to be loaded, um, where there was guys towing heavy wire ropes running through knee-deep mud, um, <laughs> pulling these wire ropes. I've never seen people um, work day in, day out doing that. And they start at four in the morning, five in the morning and go till, till dark. And a heck of a lot of those people ended up going broke because of the boom-bust cycle of logging and and harvesting so yeah. um, and, and processing. So, you know, I'm, I'm concerned that on one hand, New Zealand sort of wants us to do all this value add locally, but we've got cost structures that just seem to get in the way and we've got rules and regulations. In farming sense, that happens, and I think it's probably happened in the, in the timber industry as well. Would that be right? Or um, to, a, to a certain degree, but, um, you know, the, the earlier discussion that you and I had uh, about um, um, changes in the 1980s with Rogenomics, um, to me, is, is a fundamental that, for the greater part of the volume that's being exported from New Zealand, uh, the, the, the wood product does not belong to New Zealand or New Zealanders. Mm. Um, you know, we have uh, sold, uh, you know, the, the stumpage rights to offshore entities. And um, sure, they, uh, they, they may pay or their staff may pay PAYE and there's a bit of GST swapping. Mm around here and there but basically every ship that leaves New Zealand with logs on is exporting profits that could have otherwise stayed here if there was a higher level of ownership of the base resource um, uh, still here in New Zealand and and I think that that 
in itself is a fundamental problem. We've, we've got about 27 million annual harvest is about seven and a half is or about well let's let's make the numbers easy about seven million domestic consumption of logs and 20 million exported well if if it's um 20 million times 40 dollars a average return to stump uh what's that 800 million is that, is that? Yep. Yeah. Yep. yeah so it's nearly a billion so so you know that's that's a lot of extra money that could be washing around some of it in state-owned entities or whatever, um, or uh, into you know privately New Zealand-owned forest companies. But you know we've we've lost those resources um, for the most part to overseas entities. So. Mm. And my concern has been um, a lot of people want a low you know a, a low cross rate currency um, foreign exchange rate. Uh, as that's that's the thing that helps um, exporters survive. Well, I would suggest that the way New Zealander could could do more of that further processing and do more of its have more ownership locally is if we had a stronger currency. And so I sort of have a belief that's different to most New Zealand farmers or exporters. Uh, a high currency is something that we have benefited from in recent years, and sadly we're now down to a a weak currency again. And I see it all going through the same same old cycle it's interesting i'm really proud that you've um i've sold my trees into mainly local consumption and sawmilling so i sort of feel quite good about that i understand what you're saying yeah. so just tell me yeah moving on i mean it's it's a it's a horrible story when you look at the the sawmills that closed and and the people that lost their lost lost their family business or their livelihood but now we've got a thing called the emissions trading scheme and i call it a thing because i have not much time for it but what's that going to do to the new zealand forestry landscape in terms of um logs coming in sort of 10 20 30 years time well it, it, it's actually an odd mix because um you know we a few months ago just prior to gabriel we went down to the hawks bay and i was horrified to see some beautiful hill country farmland all covered with dots with uh, pine trees planted in. Nobody loves pine trees and the benefit that they bring to this country more than I do. But, you know, I, I don't see the necessity for that type of carbon farming. Uh, and the fact that a lot of these carbon farmings, uh, farms are not ever intended to be harvested, you know, and that that in itself is going to be an enormous environmental um, disaster that probably uh, my grandkids and your grandkids will be scratching their heads saying, what, what the hell were those people thinking about back then, you know? Bye. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that the whole carbon, the emissions trading thing is just a can full of worms and the sooner it gets run through the shredder like so many other pieces of legislation, the better. I don't think that Don, they're going to be finishing up so soon. Now, where uh, I live, Mark, surrounded by pines on three sides, probably another one soon, if if the way things are going. And yet, this place around Tuatapri, you have a Bushman's Museum. There's an annual, you know, New Year's Eve. We have a wood chopping competition and all of that. That's those small, smaller mills are all gone. We have mm. one old one here struggling. We sometimes, it's pretty much towards the end of a farmhouse. Husband would just take the tractor with the bucket, go load up and go. But at one time, this place was thriving. 
There yeah. used to be, you know, a, a, a train would come right up to here. We had banks and whatnot. And right now I have a tiny four square. And yeah. other than that, everything is 80 Ks away. And all the communities around here are this area. Let's say it's it's not uh, it's socioeconomically. It's on the poorer side of mm. uh, Southland. Mm. And one would think that a few decades ago now, these sort of places would be what today they quaintly term as 15 minute cities and everything and everything was available here. And now suddenly you're left to these dying communities. And who who picks up the tab? It's a travesty. Yeah, well, uh, you know, harking back to my origins from Awakuni and Ratahi, Ratahi uh, which is seven miles away, mm. used to have a hospital is where I was born, you know, and uh, none of that exists anymore. All of that infrastructure has been stripped out. And I think that it's unfortunate that... Uh, you know, so much effort has been put into um, city living and building infrastructure and everything in cities. But now you've, we've got the the other side of that economic coin that, you know, people can't afford to build and or live in those cities. And so I, I, I think if uh, there's an opportunity, we should be decentralising uh, government departments out of Wellington to take the whole click out of the place and uh, breaking them up and spreading them around rural New Zealand. You know, we've got uh, this whole Zoom business and we've got fibre in the ground and we've got um, Skylink above us sometime soon, if not now. Uh, and, um, you know, I think people should be encouraged to, to repopulate the rural areas of New Zealand um just from a livability point of view you know it's, uh... and yet uh, as don and i we interviewed an american professor a fortnight back julian romanello they they've now got this blueprint for livable cities which are densely packed chicken coops mm. everyone fifteen thousand per square kilometer and this is definitions of livable has moved along yeah it, it's Amazing! You you have the media gaslighting us. This this very morning there was this article on um, newsroom almost a few days back about uh, how this these all new conspiracies are coming with us. All people want to do is to make cities livable. Who mm. wants to live in Auckland today or Wellington or just yeah. the nightmare that they've created traffic wise, yeah. infrastructure wise? No, well, I I listened to most of that interview with that uh, lady from um, Tulsa, wasn't it, Oklahoma? Julianne from mm. Manolo. Yeah, and um, yeah, I, I thought she she made some terrific points, and uh, it's uh, I was horrified to find out that stupid New Zealand has got all seventy odd councils have put their hand up and said, "Yeah, pick me. We want to be a fifteen minute city." Well, I see, really see that working in Kaitaia or Awanui or. Uh, Ratahi or Tuna uh, or wherever, you know, rubbish, mm. absolute rubbish. Yep, we are the Petri dish, as we called it. So, look, we should move on a little bit further into your career. Um, Sumitomo Corporation, and then you went back to school, I gather. You went back to school. Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, I um, uh, A friend of mine was the Director of Executive Education at uh, Waikato University, and I was uh, sort of waxing lyrical one evening uh, at Rotary that I, was, I didn't quite know where I was going and that sort of thing. He said, I should do a degree. And I said, well, I have ne never done a bachelor's. And he said, oh, no worries. He said, what you know about business, you'll be away laughing. So uh, I, after I convinced my wife I should uh, go and do that, um, I went along and 
when my first assignment came back with a nice big fat juicy A on the top of it, I thought oh, I might be able to do this. So uh, yeah, it was a great experience. Uh, the full time class at that stage at Waikato um, Business School, um, we had fifteen Chinese, um, five German, and three Kiwis, a Cook Islander, and a Fijian. So it was it was a great mix of people, and we just had we had a terrific amount of uh, fun and and some really good learning and some experiences uh, and relationships which uh, I really value. But uh, when when I finished with that, um, I started doing um, a bit of business consulting, which led me into an executive lease position with a um, private training establishment that had four. Um, uh, campuses in South Auckland and the one that I was based at in in Hamilton, and um, yeah, so I, I did that for nearly a couple of years. It was great experience um, in the education field, but I, I I started to yearn for that sawdust back in in my socks again, and um, so I, I ended up getting a position with uh, Carter's uh, Building Supplies in Northland, and. Um, I went up there and uh, I ended up managing across three branches, uh, Mangafai, Mangatoroto and, and Whangarei. And um, yeah, that was that was that was good, but it got worse. Uh, I, I basically started in the in the jaws of the GFC and um, that that caused a transition of um flexibility at branch level to be transitioned through to head office and so you know you became more of a puppet than a um, um, a dancer yourself sort of thing and so uh, I uh, I changed uh, shirt colours and uh, put on an orange one and went to um, Mitre 10 Mega in Albany and I was there for nearly three years. Great experience working in the big box situation a uh, completely different animal to the smaller um, uh, businesses that I'd been involved with uh, with Carters, um, and you know, obviously a much bigger retail focus. And um, yeah, it's uh, it, it an awful lot to um, uh, to the operation of those. And I'm quite interested to see a thing pop up on my. Um, uh, Twitter feed this morning that um, might attend uh, having a bit of a struggle financially because uh, the platform that I was using uh, 2012 to 2015 still exists today with probably about 10,000 patches over it and they're trying to put in a new SAP system which is just dragging them under financially so I, I hope they make it through because they they could provide a good service. They they do just for a bit of clarification is Mitre Ten is that run uh, each each entity is um, individually owned or franchised is it or um, is it a co op how does it how does how does it all work Yes, it is a cooperative. Um, so the, when when I joined, there were about seven or eight stores that were um, owned by the corp by the cooperative and run as like a corporate stores. Uh, but all the others were private, but subsequently those corporate stores have been all sold um, in amongst the existing owners. So, so the, the, 
the the big fiscal drag they're saying is about 67 million dollars uh, if the thing in the paper today was correct um is um trying to get them onto a new platform um for business operations so i hope that goes well yeah this one place where I've in recent times heard of is, and Don, sorry if I interrupted you. No, I heard Kat, the Carter Hold, Harvey, and the Mighty Ten name together. And that was during these uh, lockdowns, Mark. When was it Carter Hold that was accused of withholding timber supplies and Mighty Ten and the others were complaining? I don't know, wonder if you have a comment on that, because I know the Commerce Commission at that, that time started uh, checking this. Yeah, well... Um... When when the market was steaming along before COVID, um, mm. you know you could you could sell the sawdust off the ground to a builder, you know. Uh, mm. But the um, the moment we hit COVID, um, all sorts of relationships fell apart, and particularly it was the ITM chain that had didn't have uh, a particularly strong alliance to um, Carters, and so. Uh, Carter's, um, as my understanding, sort of removed supply flexibility to ITM. So it put a, a lot of the ITM stores under a lot of lot of pressure. So, uh, um, yeah, you know, let's face it, um, Carter Hold Harvey belongs to New Zealand's richest man, Graham Hart, and, you know, he, he probably doesn't even know that he still owns Carter Hold Harvey because all of his <laughs> other things are doing so well. But, um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a real shame um, that that the the industry coming back to your comments earlier, Jaspreet, about the sawmills closing down. That that the rationalities uh, that were needed to made be made amongst the sawmills came from um, a thing called conversion. So when you take uh, a, a round log and you try and make it into square timber. Um, you you lose sawdust, and I see uh, you know Don smiling away there. He knows all about conversion. It's the the width of the kerf of your saw, how much you're throwing away in sawdust. So, and most of these old sawmills were had very low conversion rates. Um, do you know what your conversion rate was, Don? It varied on the size of the log, but I had very hungry a kerf a kerf um, saw inserted yeah. tooth saw, so it was horrible uh, relatively. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, so you know, to to get to get the conversion rate up, anything above sort of fifty five percent, you're really starting to make some good money. You have to throw big technology at, uh, and that technology generally emanates out of the United States. And um, so, yeah, that that's that those sort of localized inefficiencies. You know, a lot of those saw, old sawmills were based around native trees, which were big in diameter, whereas the pine trees are much smaller in diameter. So, therefore, you, you the, that whole waste factor is a is a big struggle. You know, so mm. boy, are we learning a lot from you, Mark? This is Mark Holman um, from Papamoa. And this is his life. He's telling us uh, what's and all. It's a fantastic story. I mean, it's, this is what I love about New Zealand. There's a lot of real New Zealand's New Zealanders with a lot of real grassroots stories to tell. And the more we can tell them, the better we'll be off in time. I mean, um, we talked earlier about the ETS and forestry head. I, I think the 
that's the ultimate greenwashing going on in this country at the moment. But um, that's that's done until the uh, biodiversity credits come in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> that's going to be bigger. But you had another stage in recent times where you tried to um, develop a concept of modular homes and lower cost modular homes by by the sound of it, and things just went awry around twenty twenty. Would you like to build us into that, and then what happened in twenty twenty onward? Yeah, sure. Well, um, um, I uh, and some business colleagues uh, basically based around my timber industry and supply chain experience decided that we we should be able to and, and could be able to build um, modular housing. So we spent quite a bit of time and money uh on uh, design and engineering and so forth and we came up with um uh, a, a very good um sound concept which um we finally got to the point of um having sales uh confirmed and um literally the day that we were planning to start our um uh, our first earthworks and starting construction on the first um, modules in the factory um, was the day that Auckland went into its four-month lockdown. So, um, so that that really did put a major spanner in the works, and um, um, then the ensuing supply uh, supply chain issues around uh, the availability of products and timeliness and so forth and if uh, you've ever project managed building a house uh, you will know that you know you need to line up lots and lots of things in in a, in a good timely fashion but when you can't guarantee on the supply availability of, of a product um, uh, every, everything becomes um, uh, quite quite hairy the thing that I didn't understand outside of my timber and supply chain experience was how damn complex and overbearing the whole compliance uh, uh, and regulatory system had become with uh, with housing. And in the early 80s, I bought a section and built a house employing a builder and a plumber and electrician and that sort of thing in five months um, and I remember virtually no paperwork um, but uh, you know if if you change your mind as to uh, uh, you know once you've got building consent and, and you can't get a particular size of weatherboard but you can get another size so you put that on then you're up for several hundred dollars with council for a minor variation you're up for uh, getting your designer or your draftsman to redraw things and so forth. And it just absolutely became a nightmare. And one of the one of the things, you know, we're in a, in a situation where you're committed to be spending, say, like 60,000, 70,000 bucks a week on materials and labour and subbies and all that sort of thing. So hitting your uh, income um, tranches is pretty important. But when when uh, eight to 12 weeks for getting a, a consent through turns into eight and 12 months 
and in some and in one instance went to 24 months where it was tangled up with the resource consent um you know that, that those actually become the chokeholds on things you know and and um people say oh well you know the, you, there must be something wrong with you because it failed but the, the you know I, I liken it to uh that um uh test that they do with the sas that they take them out and they drop them uh, almost in waist deep uh um swamp and make them fight their way through and that's exactly what every day uh with that with the housing um felt like and I, and I absolutely take my hat off to the group housing companies who are out there and are building and are uh delivering they they must have worked out some pretty lickety split things to uh, make it through because the the um, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. And now listening to you, Mark, I can't help but I always compare statistics. What's actually being said in the media now? The New Zealand Trade and Enterprise website very proudly declares that for past several years in a row, New Zealand has been ranked number one in the world for ease of doing business, and they say this. Indexes informed by academic research and measures 12 business regulatory topics across 190 countries. What you are saying, <laughs> I, I can see that. Rubbish! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, out of, so there's obviously someone spending some money trying to get some, like, I, I know what statistics mean, sweet F all. Yeah. But this is, this is what the, our government, our regulators openly declare. Isn't it galling to have this thrown at your face when someone like you, you are, you're saying doing business is, you're comparing it to an SAS military exercise. Mm, yeah, no, it, it, it's crazy. Like um, one one of these projects that took nearly two years to get um, resource consent and building consent, the resource consent requirement was just because we were by the tiniest of percentage over the impermeable area allowable in the district plan. Well, you know, the district plan is just something that's made up by some wombles sitting in an office, you know, it doesn't really have, you know, yep, yep. a lot of relativity. So the offset, and so this this cost nearly $18,000 between the council's costs and me employing a planner on my side and a whole lot of other jiggling and wiggling. And if, if you, for the benefit of our listeners, what did the planner do ultimately? What was the way out here? How yeah. did you come to a resolution? Yeah. So, so the resolution was for $18,000, we, we could plant five pittosporum trees. Oh my God. Uh, quite Somebody expensive trees, aren't they? Now. <laughs> uh, but that's that's what's going to happen when we have done. You know, we've spoken of that the previous boss, and I'll forget her name. Now you'll remember it. Who's now gone to the head of the Productivity Commission, the one oh. who oversaw the Ministry of Environment staffing going up from three hundred twenty to twelve hundred during her tenure. Yeah. This lady has now moved to the head of New Zealand Productivity Commission, and, <laughs> and the name done. Do you remember L L Linda Robertson? It's a uh... Massive contradiction, isn't it? Going to yes, the productivity but, commission. Yeah, that's that's what's happening. What you're seeing is our very quintessential def Kiwi definition of uh, productivity. So, so just um, going back, uh, yeah, absolutely, Jasper. Sorry to interrupt. The getting a code of compliance for your modular homes. How hard was that? Because I'm aware of a company that's um, been taken to hell and back uh, over about three or four years 
to get its code of compliance from a passive home concept where they would make lots of homes. Have, did you have to go through a massive um, barrage of of uh, experimentation and, and planning plans and presentations to to planners and consultants to get get past go? Um, no. I hate to give credit to Auckland Council, but I, <laughs> I will do that. That they actually set up a um, a, a modular consenting um, subsection within their consenting organisation, and so we we had allocated to us one um, um, building inspector uh, who was a lovely Canadian guy who come from. Um, modular housing in Canada and and rather than being uh, an obstacle he, he was actually very helpful in, in allowing us to negotiate the the lines between um, the standard 3604 timber framed housing and what we were uh, doing with our um, modular stuff so with for for the benefit of those who are not quite sure, three six zero four is the the building code for um, timber framed houses, and there's a whole lot of things in there that you can do. Um, and for the things that we wanted to do outside of that, we had to have full uh, full uh, engineering sign off and um, right. um, uh, from structural engineers and so forth. And you know, every time you send them an email, it costs you a thousand dollars. You know, so it's like ah, yeah, yeah. Doing, <laughs> doing doing business in New Zealand ain't easy, that's for sure. And um, yeah, no, I think I think that's a, that's the nut of all of most of our problems. Um, so, Mark, yeah, we've we've taken up a lot of your time, but we do need to just go to the point of twenty twenty. The lockdowns seriously put you under, and your you know fellow investors under a lot of strain. Um, the the lockdowns, the forced or the coercive regime that we were put under to to be vaccinated. Yeah, you know, how did that all uh, impact your life? Because I, I know it has. Um, and you know, if you if you feel free to talk about it, I'm we're happy to hear it because on Greenwashed we we like to get this sort of stuff out. And um, I think you have a story. Yeah, no, well, thanks for the opportunity. Um, sort of going back to um, my heritage, my dad was basically a teenager when he was in uh, the Air Force during the Second World War. And so it made a big, really big impression on him. So when I was growing up as a boy, we I had tons of information about stuff to do with World War Two, And I actually had a really good grasp on the Nuremberg trials and uh, and the articles flowing out from that around medical experimentation and so forth. So, and on on top of that, because of my heavy industry involvement in, in forestry, sawmilling and uh, port operations and so forth, um, I, I've got a pretty good skill to, to make a rapid risk assessment of what's, um, what's dangerous, what's going to kill me and what might kill somebody else. And um, so, yeah, it didn't take me long to to sniff out um, uh, the uh, rot that was in Denmark um, with um, with this whole COVID thing. 
Um, but it was just like, I guess, like so many people, we couldn't actually believe it was being done to us, you know? Yeah. Supposedly yeah. Um, by the people that uh, we had given leadership to the country and around the world to. And, um, yeah, so I, I, I think that I've learned more in the last three years than I have in the previous 62. So uh, it's not much of an indictment. But personally, uh, I so because of those things of uh, understanding that uh, I, I shouldn't be interfered with uh, by anyone, I chose not to um, have the vaccination. It was the only one in uh, my immediate family. My wife didn't want to, but she's a primary health care giver and um, she um, basically to keep a job, she, she had to have them. Um, our three children chose to um, get the uh, vaccinations. And um, unfortunately, um, because our... Uh, eldest daughter is a, a public service imbued in the swamp in Wellington. Um, yeah, she um, just took really uh, um, great umbrage to me not being vaccinated and the risk that I posed to everyone in creation. If the vaccine had been any good, it probably would have worked. But um, And so... Uh, I wasn't, and by default, uh, my wife and I weren't allowed to um, see our grandkids, uh, or, or, and uh, basically, it caused the um, uh, the the estrangement, I guess, for want of a bit of a word, uh, with um, her and the family and ourselves, which is, uh, you know, that's that's a real heartbreak. Mm -hmm. um, and but but wait, it gets worse. Um, <laughs> my my wife's uh, sister, who trained as a nurse and uh, remains in the um, health industry, but in management, uh, um, she she became quite belligerent about uh, me not choosing to be uh, vaccinated, and um, yeah, so uh, push came to shove. Uh, um, we ended up losing my wife's only sibling, so uh, not by death, but by uh, estrangement. So, mm. yeah, I mean, it's um, those sorts of things, along with uh, all the burdens of uh, um, industry and um, um, political things going on. It's like, you know, why the hell do we bother to get up some mornings, you know? It's, mm. um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's pretty tough. Pretty it's tough. been tough, all right. And, um, you know, you, I have to say, um, Mark, you're not alone. The stories we hear uh, all around this country, similar stories. Mm. Um, the destruction of the family unit, the destruction of of um, right from wrong, really. Mm. Um, and, and all that's gone with it has been unbelievable. And I think we've all been subjected, those of us on on the people we talk to around RCR, a lot of us have been subjected to this sort of stuff. Mm. It's it's unacceptable. Uh, I dare say we live in hope that someone will say sorry one day, but you know, I suppose that is perhaps a tall order. Mm. But Yuck, you've been to you've been to hell like many others, and uh, hopefully you 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 know you you've still got a smile on your face, and that's a, that's the the key thing. And um, you know, there's good people around you that will support you through it, but. Man, it's been tough, that's for sure. And, um, you know, I I take my hat off to you for sort of 
opening up on on our show because not everyone's willing to do that. Not everyone's willing to do it. And, uh, you know, drawing this to a close, I see um, on your Twitter feed or your X feed, you say a Thomas Jefferson quote is, when tyranny becomes law, rebellion becomes duty. Mm. And I think that's what you and I and Jaspreet and others around us um, sort of feel. It's a really good quote. And so, Mark, can I, we just draw this to a close, but thank you for um, coming to us on the RCR feedback channel for us to find you. And um, and we're very grateful for, to, to have had this chat and have uh, This Is Your Life, Mark Holman. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you to both of you and to RCR for giving um, community to uh, the, those of us who have been estranged. But I, I sort of reflect upon, uh, I think it's a quote attributable to Winston Churchill saying, when you're going through hell, don't stop. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thank you so much. And listeners, Mark came through us, at, uh, Don said through the feedback channels, 2057 is a number or inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Goodbye. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.